Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. All righty. Hello, Madigan. Hello, Keegan. How are you today? I'm super tired and had a really bad headache. I went to bed after one and woke up at like 630 and then For why um, I think Penny woke up. Oh, there was a super loud squirrel in our tree right outside the window. So she was like trying to figure out what was going on with this loud squirrel. And we were kind of just like watching it together. And then after that, I was just like, I'm up now, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. It's also been so hot, which I feel like is disturbing our sleep patterns. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like totally. um, not last night, but the night before I woke up in the middle of the night, like sweating. It was like 3 a.m. And we had the AC on. We turned it up um, while we went to bed. But still, like it was just that hot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yesterday when I was home, I didn't like yesterday was the day that I was going to like compile all my notes together. I write during the week in like multiple notebooks and then I type everything up on Saturday and I didn't do any of it because every time I sat down to like work, it was even with the AC on me, it was so hot and unbearable. I was just like, there's no way I can do this. I was like, I'm just going to get up and I wanted to get up early in the morning anyway so I could do it. And then I was done by like 10 so then I just kind of like I took a nap eventually and just kind of tried to rest a little bit. So I'm feeling better right now, but it kind of feels like it's like four in the afternoon already. And it's only yeah. like 1230 here. Yeah, I hear you on that I'm for sure. Very and thrown I'm off sure today. The rest of the country is experiencing heat as well. At least that's from yeah. what I see like in my weather app. I always check like Missouri's weather and it's been hot everywhere. But mm -hmm. for listeners who are not in Los Angeles right now, we are having a heat wave. Yeah. <laughs> for the next week, it's going to be in the hundreds or upper 90s. So oh. I know even my dogs are just like aware that they should not exert any extra energy. Like neither of them moved until the sun went down last night they were just like no mama dude <laughs> we're just yeah. gonna lay down <laughs> I know what they mean but I've been on this new workout program so I've been working out every day and today is my rest day and I was gonna go on a walk mm -hmm. and I'm like I can't go on a walk it's too hot I have to find something else to do that's kind of like semi-active in my house <laughs> uh we do need to jump into this episode because it is likely to be a long one. Um, yes. Well, luckily, we, we both have our white claws. We're ready. We do. I found this to be kind of a difficult episode to prep for. Um, right. Because you're having to do kind of like background on two different people and be in depth enough to get to know who they are while also being concise enough 
to know that we have to try and get all of this in in an hour. Right. So it, it was a little hard for me. Um, I have like 10 pages of notes and like right. 18,000 sources. <laughs> but Well, um, and that's good. And that's the thing is that there are times also where I feel like I have too much information and I kind of condensed everything down for myself today just for the things that I feel like uh, are closest to the things that we want to talk about and reasons why we're struggling with uh, you know, this team, uh, but also just, again, talk about who they are as people a little bit, what their past is like, uh, and also just really discuss how we're feeling about it. And we're going to be discussing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for the next few months quite heavily because there's going to be, I'm sure, lots of news headlines involving them. So it is going to kind of be an ongoing thing, but especially now that uh, Joe Biden has officially announced his running mate to be Kamala Harris, I felt that it was important for us to get to know them, especially because, of course, immediately, you know, Trump's team points out speculation about, like, if she's a an actual American citizen. Oh, yeah. They started the birtherism stuff back up hardcore immediately because exactly. they're racist. And then like. there's also, on the other side, there's people who I feel like don't want to talk about the shortcomings of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, where we still need to remember them. And the reason that it's important to remind ourselves and each other of their shortcomings is because if they do become our president and vice president, these problems that are going on in our country aren't going to go away. We still have to protest for them. We still have to fight for them and hope that these new leaders will listen to us enough to comply. And unfortunately, especially when it comes to their history with law enforcement, it's it's unsettling for us. Yes. So... Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, and it does, we do need to keep in mind that these people are one human beings, so they are complex. Uh, and their politicians. thoughts and opinions do change over time, um, but they are politicians. And that's something that's really important to remember. I feel like there are certain politicians, um, especially Obama <laughs> comes to mind right away, who we tend to idealize and only remember the positive things about them, but they are still politicians. Obama had a lot of things that he did while in office that I disagree with. Um, if we were putting his policies under a microscope the way that we are now doing with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, we would also have very critical things to say, especially That would actually given- be a really great episode idea to look back on some past like presidencies and see what was good and bad in them and what in, right. what's I mean, in line with our views now and things like that. Because honestly, in some ways, Obama's stance on crime and being quote like hard on crime and and all of those things was almost he was almost more radical in that way than Kamala was uh, because, for instance, and we're going to talk about this later, like Kamala was very staunchly and continues to be very staunchly uh, anti death penalty, whereas Obama was very pro death penalty um, and actually considered himself to be tougher on crime than John Kerry. So there's anytime I say all that only to say that anytime you look at candidates, especially ones like Joe Biden, who have had a very long career, you are going to find things that you do not like. But it is of important course. to talk about those things and also to see if we believe the candidates have really grown uh, or if they are pandering um, to us. Uh, you know, like it's, it's exactly just, it's one of those things that we felt we needed to talk about. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. Which uh, he was I love 
the middle name Robinette. I wonder where it comes from because he is a junior. So his father was Joseph Robinette Biden Sr. I wonder if Robinette was maybe like a maiden name or yeah. a family name that was turned into a middle name. At did some you point. have a teacher by that last name? I when you went not. to school? Okay, so no. I, I did, and he was one of my favorite teachers. So that might be also why I love that name, but I've always loved the name Robin, too. So Robinette, to me, just I actually really think cool. Robinette as a first name for a girl would be really cute. Oh, my <laughs> it's, gosh. It's very so, cute. There's so many cute girl names and no cute boy names in the world. Like, I'm screwed if I have a boy. He's going to just be <laughs> called baby boy baby boy (laughs) or baby gender undecided until you're older and you can tell me how you identify it's a really long name um so yes he was born in 1942 on November 20th 1942 which damn I'm sorry that I keep interrupting you but like 1942 could we think about that for a second like my grandpa's age like that's how old my grandpa is for real my I mean it's insane Yeah, it's insane. So, I mean, again, he will be the oldest president in history if elected. And Trump is old as shit. So that should tell you (laughs) something. Um, But he was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which as somebody who watched The Office, I love that. You know, Um, I also love that his mom's name is Catherine Eugenia Biden, but she went by Jean. Um, Eugenia I just think it's such such a cute name I love old names too I know that's not the point of this episode but I love old names so do I but his childhood seems pretty standard 1950s 1960s white America to me so yeah very like very like middle class suburb you know good healthy upbringing good parents yeah I mean what I will say is that they did go through some difficult times so while his father had been wealthy um, before he was born after he was born he fell on hard times and they actually the entire family ended up moving in with his mother's parents for a while the Finnegan's so they lived with his mother's parents for a while but eventually um, they ended up moving to Delaware where his father got a job as a used car salesman and they then kind of had this what seemed to me this kind of leave it to beaver yeah that's what I was gonna say very leave it to beaver kind of like he was a star football player you know yeah he seems just exactly what you would think of you know a white I picture him being kind of like well yeah you said football very jock Esque. Oh, very, Probably very much charming and popular. You know, just how all politicians are. Yeah, yes. you know, I'm sure he, was, he had his way with the ladies. He was smooth, I bet. You know, all that kind of stuff. For sure, and you you see that still with him. As, I mean, um, he tries to have his way with the ladies. We could say that, right? But he still has this. Um, Charm. Yeah. You know, I think he has this charm, even though, yes, now uh, in our current climate, sometimes that comes across as a little like, ooh, like too yeah. creepy. Um, but I bet you at the time, I bet you he was incredibly charming. He was good looking. He was this all star athlete. Um, yeah. So- He graduated high school in 1961, and then he went to the University of Delaware, where he double majored in history and political science. And um, while he was there, he met his first wife. And I had to look up how to say this. Um, Oh, I think it's... Yeah, Nelia. Because it's like Neil and then Ia, Mm -hmm. Nelia Hunter. I kept wanting to say Nelia, um, but I think it's Nelia Hunter. Yeah. Then he went and got a law degree from Syracuse in 1968. And they didn't, did they say on any of the websites what year he got married to Neela? Uh, they did. It was in like 1966 or something. 
Right. So he got his law degree and he briefly worked as an attorney in Delaware before quickly switching to politics. Um, I found it really interesting during this period, the similarities between Trump and Biden. And I don't say that to mean that that they are the same. They're not. But Biden was not drafted to Vietnam um, because he had draft deferments while in school. And then ultimately, he ended up being exempt from service because of his asthma, which Trump was exempt from service because of his bone spurs, which asthma does seem more legit. Um, What are bone spurs? It's something in your foot. Like it's like a, a I don't know. It's like a thing in your foot. Hmm. And so Trump was exempt from service because he had bone spurs. It's just interesting to me that both of them, neither one of them went to Vietnam. And then similarly to Trump, Biden um, is a teetotaler. I can never say that, uh, which is basically like he is sober. So alcoholism was prominent in both Trump's family. Uh, His father was an alcoholic. I think his uncle actually died from alcoholism. Maybe not his father. His uncle died from alcoholism. And then... Yeah, I'm um, looking forward to reading the book about his life that I think... What was it? His sister? His niece-in-law, sister wrote, talking about that. Oh, his niece. Yeah, goes into a lot of that family history from the excerpts that I've read, and it's very interesting. Yeah. And so similarly, the um, Biden-Finnegan families, uh, they both had alcoholism in their families as well. So both men abstained from drinking alcohol, like from, they just don't, neither one of them drink. I had no idea that Trump was sober. Yeah, which I just find that, well, I mean, he doesn't drink, but a lot of people are like, he takes Adderall. Like, (laughs) he's on uppers. Yeah, we know that Trump would possibly like his drugs quite a bit. Yeah. From what I've heard, you know, (laughs) so yeah. Biden also got a lot of flack for not participating in anti-Vietnam war protests. Later on, people would give him a lot of flack for that. Uh, And he was quoted as saying, I'm not big on flak jackets and tie-dye shirts. Other people marched. I ran for office, got elected to the United States Senate at 29 and came down here and was one of those votes that helped stop the war. So he believes, like, I didn't need to march in the streets. I did the shit on the hill. What What do you feel when you read that? Like, what do you think of that? I mean, um, I think that the revolution has many lanes and marching isn't for everybody. And so I try not to be too critical of that. I don't like he has this very it's the thing that makes him appealing to conservative people now, conservative white people, older white people now, which is that he has this kind of um, moderate to conservative mentality about, quote, like hippie culture and things like that. Like, right. I don't like that he says I'm not big on flat jackets and tie dye shirts as if that's like a, it feels like a dig to me. Right. Um, I, which I, I don't love. Right. My issue, I guess, is just kind of having hindsight as to the things that he's to say in years to come about his activism uh, his non-existent, uh, you know, street activism that he talks about so much. Yes. So to me, when I hear that, that's just more evidence of the fact that he's lied to us a lot about the things that he's done. Right. And that's and I say lie loosely because, yes, he was elected to an office where he could make real change and it's according to him, he did. But at the same time, it it sounds very dismissive of the people getting things done. And then later on in life, trying to pretend that you were one of those people that you once kind of neglected, you know, and turned Mm -hmm. away from. I would say that was something in doing prep for this episode. Um, So 
kind of spoiler alert of my final thoughts on everything. <gasps> I I will say doing prep for this episode made me soften on Kamala a little bit and made me a little bit more critical of Biden actually because of things like that. Like throughout his career, he has kind of inflated um, inflated things, manufactured things, um, exaggerated his uh, his participation in certain things. And the civil rights movement is one of those things. Like he said over and over again that he marched in the civil rights movement. And that's really not true. It's you know? not. So- I actually, I watched a video this morning that was kind of going into all of the different Um, you know, quotes of things that he had said at that time and how he had kind of like gone back on what he had said there. I watched this great YouTube video where they kind of like compiled all of the times that Biden mentioned marching in the civil rights movement. And it's just like clip after clip when I marched in the civil rights movement, when I marched in the civil rights movement. And this is in like 1987 uh, during his first two tries to run for presidency. We heard this a lot. Uh, He said he participated in sit-ins at lunch counters when he was 17 in Wilmington and he would go to like the black churches and congregate to help like desegregate movie theaters and, you know, help with vote, you know, sign up people to vote and all this stuff. So he's said all of these things and I should have a link to this video because it's done very, very well. Um, And then literally a few months later when he dropped out of one of the presidential races, he He says, during the 60s, I was, in fact, very concerned about the civil rights movement. I was not an activist. I worked at an all-black swimming pool in the east side of Wilmington, Delaware. I was involved. I was involved in what they were thinking, what they were feeling. make you... And then he says, mean, you did anything. And then he says again, I was involved, but I was not out marching. I was not down in Selma. I was not anywhere else. And he describes himself as being a suburbanite kid who got some exposure to what was happening to the black Americans in his city, which is good enough. It's good enough to like to say, like to give your actual experience of connecting with if if it's true that you felt during that time that you felt an education from those in the black community in your city and in your area then that should be good enough you don't have to pretend that you were some amazing activist because we can fact check that shit well and also don't frame being exposed to black people as any kind of activism that's not exactly like it's that is a great point it annoys me that he says I was involved because I was a lifeguard at a black swimming pool. That I was surrounded by them. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't mean you did anything. If you, in fact, if you were exposed to things and you didn't actively work to stop anything, then that actually makes you worse mm-hmm. than people who were not exposed um, to black communities and didn't do anything. So I, exactly. that annoys me. I don't like that part of this. And that's something about Joe Biden that annoys me just in general about him because I feel like he tries to figure out what the pulse is and then tries to make himself fit into whatever that is. And Which is it, a positive it and a negative. Like, in a way, if you're looking at it from the game of politics, it's a positive because then that means that he might actually listen to what the people are saying because that's going to be what's the most popular. But it means I can't trust him, though, but because you can't the second the tide him. turns. Because this is the thing. When he started his campaign with Obama... He started those lies up again. He started talking about marching. He started talking about being an activist again and making these same claims when literally he had said 
you know, just what was it like at the time, 20 years earlier, less than 20 years earlier, that that wasn't true. He talks about how he got his education for real, he says, in a black church. He goes, that's not a hyperbole. And it's like you literally have we have it. We have the receipts of you saying years ago that you were not fully involved. You were involved in this weird way in your head because you were surrounded by the black community in some way, but you did not get your education in a black church. That's just such bullshit to me. Right. And we'll have lots more to talk about, um, with that. So I'm going to keep talking kind of like through him becoming a Senator and we will circle back. We will circle back. Okay. Um, So Nelia and Joe, they ended up having three kids and he told his wife very early on, I think on one of their first dates, that he had ambitions to become a senator by the age of 30 and then he wanted to become president later on. So early in his political career, he clerked for a Republican named William Prickett. And at that time, he said he believed himself to be a Republican during this period. However, he disliked the Republican presidential candidate, Richard Nixon, so much that he ended up registering at that time as an independent. So he never registered as a Republican. That's really Uh, funny, actually. And I think that, you know, that's the interesting thing about our political party system, which, again, I could go on tangents about that for days. But it's interesting how before, you know, the Trump presidency, you know, there there was there were people that would kind of choose their candidate based on just what they believed rather than just choosing, you know, party or die kind of situations. Mm-hmm. Like especially right. in the Midwest, I'm sure you knew a lot of people where it was just kind of on a candidate basis. Yeah, a candidate by candidate basis, a little bit more because we weren't in such a culture where we weren't so polarized um before, you know, and I don't really know enough about that to know whether or not that was good or bad (laughs) you know really like I mean of course it was better that we weren't as as polarized but also I feel like there was this kind of to me even now Joe Biden represents this kind of like respectability politics Uh right and he will go on and we'll talk about that to brag about the way that he was able to work with Republicans and segregationists uh, and things like that throughout his career and I don't know if that's good or bad oh you know like it's good that he can work with these people some of this shit is really bad like one of the guys that he worked with in senate which we'll get to is a piece of shit so absolutely you want to move us a little bit more forward keeks Yes. So um, in 1969, he began practicing law as a public defender. And that law firm was headed by an active Democrat. And that's the person who actually got him interested in the Democratic Party. And so later that year, he ran as a Democrat to represent the fourth district uh, on the New Cal- uh, Newcastle County Council with a liberal platform that included support for public housing in the, superb- the suburban area. And he won by 2000 votes in what was usually a Republican district. So here is a benefit. I don't want it to be just all shitting on Joe Biden. Right. Because I will say that from the beginning, he had some very progressive ideas. Um, the the idea that from the very beginning, you know, before he was even 30, he had a platform that supported public housing um, and that he was able – there is something to be said about his ability to reach across the aisle and get – Um, Republicans who normally would not vote for a Democrat to vote for him. And I think that that is something that that's a likability factor. I think too, he does have a very, you know, and we just mentioned, you know, some similarities to Trump and obviously he is not Donald Trump, but you know, there is something about him being, you know, a middle-aged white man having grown up, you know, kind of in, 
white suburbia, that kind of thing, where I feel like he can still connect with that walk of life a little bit better than maybe some of the other candidates. Like if you look at Bernie and you look at Biden, the way that they would relate to uh, differences is completely is you can't compare the two. You know what I mean? He's just a very different type of politician that wants to meet halfway almost, you know, it's it's really hard because the things that I like about Bernie is that he's like, this is right. This is wrong. It's black and white. And if you aren't, if you don't believe in these things, then you're fucking wrong. Exactly. And I appreciate that because to me, that's how I see it. How, and Joe Biden is very much more what we, what I would consider to be kind of like lukewarm or wishy-washy. And yeah. I don't like that, but that kind of being able to compromise thing, it appeals to a certain section of the population yes. that we do need to vote for Democrats in this election. So I get it. I yeah. get why people are supportive and I, of him. And I get and I and I just want to say now that it's brought up that I completely understand why he's our nominee right now. You know, there's a lot of talk about whether he's the candidate that we kind of need right now as someone who can kind of reach across the aisle. Of course, we would have had somebody else in mind. Um, but you know, it's one of the, that's been a real topic of conversation at my house lately, whether or not he's the candidate we need at this time to be able to kind of work with the Republican party to kind of lessen up on some of their craziness. You know, we could argue all day about whether or not he's the candidate we need, but you know what? He's the candidate we got. It's the candidate we got. Exactly. So I guess there's really no saying, yeah, there's no arguing. We're just stuck either way. But um, Biden ran for U.S. Senate in Delaware in 1972, and his campaign had almost no money. Again, like, he has this ability to be be charming, and part of that was that he was very good-looking, had a very good-looking wife and uh, appealing young family, yeah. you know, uh, and the person he was running against was this, like, aging you know, senator. So he ran. He was not expected to win. His campaign did focus on withdrawal from Vietnam, the environment, civil rights, uh, mass transit, more equitable taxation, health care, uh, the public's dissatisfaction with politics as usual, um, and just, quote unquote, change, which I included that because... I feel like that's still something he does. And that's something that a lot of politicians do where they're like, vote for change. Vote and for you're change. Like, okay, but yeah. what does that mean? Yeah, what's the change? Exactly. I had written that he also focused on criminal justice and drug policy in his first Senate campaign as well. So I think that, that's that kind may of, be true. Yeah, I may I, have read a different article, but I, you know what? <laughs> I don't know if this one was Wikipedia or Britannica from that exact one. So I don't know. Well, This is kind of, I'm going to bring it down for a second because this is really sad. But a few months after he was elected to Senate, his wife and infant daughter were killed in a car accident and his two sons were badly injured. It's just so sad. I didn't know this. Yes, I I learned it semi-recently. I mean, his life is actually full of quite a bit of tragedy. Yes. He had just been elected into the Senate. It was like a few weeks after the election. And his one-year-old daughter was killed as well as his wife. And then while they were Christmas shopping, like it was in December, December 18th. um, And then his sons, Bo and Hunter, they survived, but they were wounded. So Bo had a broken leg and Hunter had a minor, minor skull fracture. 
and other head injuries. And then for the rest of his political career, um, in remembrance of his wife and daughter, Biden to this day does not work on December 18th on the anniversary of the accident. Uh, And can you imagine, like, he's 30. He's one of the youngest senators ever to be elected. That is so... Young is crazy, crazy young. Yeah. And he just lost. He's now a single parent who just lost his wife and child. And he was going to quit. Like he was like, I'm going to leave politics and go raise my kids. But he was convinced to um, to stay in. Yeah, he was definitely encouraged to go on and he would go on to marry Jill Jacobs in 1977. And they had a daughter together as well. And Jill is the one that we are used to seeing with him on the campaign trail. And, and in they the White House, and sweet vice relationship as well. They're like, very they sweet together. I, mm. you know, I obviously we know nothing about their relationship, but just from appearances, they're a great political couple from all yeah, I mean, intents and, and purposes. And he, he has he credited her with kind of like getting him back on track, yeah. um, and motivating him to be better. But I will say, like, he does seem like a very sweet husband and father. So he, when he was sworn into office on January fifth, nineteen seventy three, again only like less than a month, only weeks after losing his wife and daughter, he actually was sworn in in his son Bo's hospital room. So it was televised from his son's hospital room. Oh my um, gosh! He didn't want to leave his son. So, um, yeah, he became the sixth youngest senator in U.S. history. Yep. And one of only 18 to take office before turning 31. So that's, it's massive. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, he was Mm -hmm. definitely a go-getter and worked very hard. And I think, again, also had a lot of other personality traits going for him and was very likable. And that really supported him moving up in his career. Yeah, I mean, and he did a lot of other things in his political career. Like you mentioned, he did run for president um, in 1987. He quit that race after he plagiarized um, bits of his speech from the British Labour Party leader, Neil Kinnock. Um, and again, this is what we're talking about. He, in this speech, falsely referred to ancestors of his who had worked in the coal mines, which wasn't true. And it, that, that's the thing with Joe Biden, where you're like, why? <laughs> like, oh you don't God. need to lie about these things. Now, you, um, listeners, you know that I just finished watching Veep. So all of this political talk just brings me to that. But it, it reminds me of when there's a scene where uh, the vice president, like, er, I don't know what she is at the time, but she takes someone's speech and it's like their personal private story about like their grandfather and stuff. And like, it's like, oh, well, you can't say this in your speech. You can't say this in your speech. And he's like, well, that's about my grandma. And she's like, I'm going to take it. It's a great story, you know? And it's like, it's in the moment. It's like, we want the audience to get, you know, amped up. We want people to connect with us. But then you forget that like it's not your life and people are able to call that shit out so easily that's absolutely i mean and i had read and i left this out but i had read um that when he was in college he was actually in trouble for having plagiarized something in one of his papers joe he, he said at that time when he was in college that that was a coincidence that the you know similarities between his paper and this other person's paper were a coincidence but it all got dredged back up in 1987 when he was running for president of course it did were like um you did this in college you're doing it again now oh. it, it, that's the thing about joe biden <laughs> you're like learn from your mistakes exactly um, 
But again, there's so much more about his political career. We will touch on more of it. But I thought maybe now we can switch gears and talk a little bit about Kamala Harris's life. Do you want to? Yeah, I'll start you off. So Kamala was born on October 20th, 1964 in Oakland, California. What? what? I have so many family members in Oakland. That's where my... (laughs) Do you have hella family members in Oakland? I do. I have hella family members in (laughs) Oakland. Uh, My grandparents met and got married in Oakland, California. (gasps) So we have deep Oakland roots. Hella dope. All right. Let's go on. Let's hope we don't hear that too much uh, if she's elected. So her mother emigrated from India in 1960, and her father emigrated from British Jamaica in 1961, and they met in Berkeley during uh, different like civil rights events and just to kind of give everybody some context just because this is a California area that we're talking about just to mention a bit what Berkeley is um, especially in the 60s and 70s it was like a very hip place for like liberals and open-minded people who wanted social change so it was definitely um, typically a more welcoming area for the most part of California during that time it was a bit more hippy dippy as some people yeah, it was say. more integrated. You know, there was a lot, it was a lot more culturally diverse than other areas. And Kamala actually goes on to say, you know, that while she was young, um, her parents would take her to civil rights marches and push her around in a stroller. But as she got older, I think her parents divorced when she was like seven she or so. She was seven when they divorced, yeah. Yeah, she ended up moving into a different area. And um, she and her sister actually had a really difficult time. She goes on to explain how they had a really hard time um, fitting in. A lot of kids didn't want to play with her because she was black. I had Um, read that uh, when she would stay with her father in Palo Alto, it was uh, a very different experience than being in Berkeley with her mom. Uh, And they they did have to move to an area that's known as the Flatlands, which was a primarily black area neighborhood uh, that was a little bit outside of that, I guess, kind of nicer Berkeley area that we would think of. So yeah, after her parents divorced, it did sound like she was kind of separated from that environment a little bit. And then by the time she was in middle school, she and her sister actually moved to Canada. But going back to her life in school, because this is actually, I would say, a pretty important moment in her life and also in her political career. Uh, She was part of the desegregation program, which promoted busing. She was living, like I said, in the flatlands, and she would be taken by bus to northern Berkeley to go to Thousand Oaks School uh, every day. And that school went from being 95% white to 40% black because of busing. So she was able to receive uh, a better education in a more prosperous community thanks to the desegregation of buses. It's great. So go ahead and put a bookmark right there yep. because we will be talking more about that soon. Exactly. <laughs> put a gold star on that bookmark. <laughs> Yeah, because we will be referring back to that shortly. We are going to come back. But she really seemed to embrace, um, while she was both Indian and black, uh, and she attended both a black Baptist church and also a Hinduist church, church or temple she would yeah she would go to temple and she would actually visit her parents hometowns a lot too like she and her sister were very well traveled and knew where they were from and I think that also creates another dimension to her that's really wonderful 
Right. So while she absolutely completely continues to embrace her Indian heritage, like many uh, biracial half black people, she did self-identify as a black woman and really spent a lot of time kind of um, becoming active in black events in black committees and things like that. So after high school, she attended Howard University, which is a historically black university in Washington, D.C. Yes. And she actually got in on kind of like a diversity scholarship as well. That's how she was able to go. So, yes, she did kind of like get in touch with those roots a bit more. And I believe it was while she was at Howard University. Yeah, she was the president of the Black Law Students Association. So she was very involved. Yeah, I mean, and she even says that, like, she had a very, very close relationship with her mother. um, But she has said many times that her mother took on the responsibility of raising two black daughters. So they did identify that way very much as being black kids. Right, well, and I think that, and this is something you can speak on, obviously, and I cannot, but I feel like with the friends that I have that are mixed race, uh, most of the time, if their skin is on the darker complexion, they will identify as being black. Uh, And I wonder if that's just to make it easier also, you know, maybe on them and also to society to see them in one way instead of constantly having to explain your whole identity. Well, I think, well, for me, at least, I can't speak for Kamala, but like for me, at least, like you... I didn't choose to identify as black necessarily because I feel like I get that all the time. I get I get questioned a lot about that. Um, you are what the world treats you as. Right. So the world will never treat me as a white person. So I can't identify that way. I can tell people that I'm white, but I'm not. I mean, and I'm very clearly not. And so I wonder if that was part of it for Kamala. I also know that there is a lot of colorism in India. Uh, so... Even by Indian standards, even though we might look at Kamala and see, you know, her as being lighter skinned, half Indian or or half black and and lighter skinned by African-American standards, by Indian standards, she's probably still pretty dark, you know, dark skinned. Yeah, that makes sense. It may have been easier for her just to identify as a black girl, especially in the 70s, you know. Yeah, to me, it just seems like having multiple identities like that, which I know it shouldn't be necessarily. You know, you are one, you're whole. You don't have multiple identities. But I can imagine um, having to fit into multiple cultures at once would be really exhausting. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, it is difficult. It is difficult. And I don't know what else, like, in her upbringing led her to kind of identify the way that she did. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know for me, I didn't know, even though her name is Kamala, which is a Hindu name, Mm -hmm. I didn't really know that she was half Indian until, like, this last year or so. Yeah. I I thought that she was a a black woman. (laughs) Very much so. Yeah, she she appears to be that way. And I think what you said, it's not about how you identify as yourself. It's about how the world identifies you specifically when it comes to race. I think that that makes a really good point that to me, it just seems like, you know what, if that's how you see me, it's just going to be easier if that's how I'm going to identify. And she and she did really hone in on that uh, part of her identity. Yeah, well, I also think, you know, not to go on too long about this, but I also do think that it is partially the experiences that you have, right? So my understanding from reading uh, 
about her childhood is that a lot of the discrimination she faced was anti-black discrimination. And I think that that can shape your worldview as well. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're facing a lot of anti-black discrimination as a half black person, um, it will push you more to identify with that, I think. Yeah. Because people are pointing it out to you all the time. That makes sense. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, that makes As, complete sense. So she, so maybe that's it. Yeah. She graduated from Howard University with a degree in political science and economics, which I'm like, okay, we got someone who knows economy stuff. That's good. Yes, right. She absolutely. has a degree in economics. Uh, she got her law degree at the University of California. Oh, and it was there that she served as their black law students as the president yes, of the Black okay. Law Students Association. So it was not at Howard University. It was at University of California. And then she finally ran for district attorney at, in 2003, unless you have something you want to say in between that. Um, yeah, so she was admitted to the Bar Association in 1990. And then in that year, 1990, she was hired as a deputy district attorney in Alameda County, California, where she was noted as being an able prosecutor on the way up. And then in 1998, she campaigned against Proposition 21, which would have granted prosecutors the option of trying juvenile defenders in superior court rather than juvenile courts. So she was like, she actually did campaign against that, which is a really good thing. Yeah. And then, yes, uh, in August of 2000, she took a job at San Francisco City Hall working for city attorney Louise Ren, Rene, I'm not sure how you say her last name, but she ran the family, um, Kamala ran the Family and Children's Services Division representing child abuse and neglect cases. And um, we're going to say Rene. She, I think that's probably she how you also say did it. a lot of work uh, with sexual assault cases. I, read a lot about her work with like, you know, the, what is it called? The three strikes rule law? The three strike law. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, ensuring that, you know, repeat offenders are being put away and things like that. But. Right. But there are pros and cons yeah. with that three strike law. And I didn't get into a lot of detail about that. That might be something that we end up touching on um, later. Right. But I will say that um, Louise Renee, who was the city attorney, she did say before Harris became DA that she was going to make the best DA that the city had seen in years. So that's how people really, really admired Kamala. They yeah, thought I that mean, she was very hardworking. She was also supported by uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi. Yes. So, like, so, she mean, had good people in her corner, for sure. This this woman, um, to quote Lin-Manuel Miranda, was nonstop. She just <laughs> went, went, went. She was very single-minded um, in trying to move ahead, and that will be both a blessing and a curse yes. as we move forward to kind of, like, look at her record. A fun fact but, about her campaign in 2003 is that Chris Rock was on her campaign circuit. Amazing. Isn't that great? <laughs> That is great. But um, something I wanted to point out about her 2003 campaign for district attorney was that she pledged to never seek the death penalty. And that is a promise that she kept. Uh, and it was somewhat to the detriment of her career. And yes. we will touch on why that was in a little bit. Okay. But she also said during her campaign that she would prosecute three strike offenders, but only in cases of violent felony. So she right. did put that caveat on there because there has been a lot that's been said about this three strike law being overly punitive, yes. especially on people of color and especially in nonviolent cases. So she did put that kind of little asterisk next to um, her promise there. Mm -hmm. And she did end up winning 
um, with 56% of the vote, and she became California's first American district attorney of color. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Very And she amazing. was sworn, sworn in on January 3rd, 2011, as the first African-American and first Asian-American and first woman to serve as California's attorney general in 2011. Yeah. So I don't have a ton um, in between just because I was trying to like, I do have a little bit of information really quick about her time as a DA. Uh, She, her predecessor was really, really had a very low uh, conviction rate. And when she was DA, her felony conviction rate before when her predecessor was there was 50%. And by 2009, it was at 76%. Yes. So I have a whole section <laughs> on her prosecution record. Okay, so good. We will for sure talk about that. Okay, good. Um, what do you want to get into now? Um, well, I just wanted to say really quickly. So she became the attorney general in 2011 and she served as the attorney general until 2017. And then she was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2017. And that's where she remains to this day until hopefully November when she becomes our vice president exactly exactly (laughs) all right well what do you want to start talking about next okay so i have a few things here on joe so we've already kind of touched on his false civil rights claims so unless you have anything else to say about that uh i just had one other thing and stop me if you're going to mention this later because i think you mentioned it earlier about working with uh certain other people like the he worked with somebody named um senator james eastland which supported him uh with his like segregation of buses thing that is anti-desegregation let's move into talking about joe and the issue of busing and segregation okay if you want to kick us off with that let's let's go there sure so joe biden opposed mandatory school busing even to this day he argues that this is not an example of systemic racism the fact that they had segregated buses which makes no sense to me what kind of mental gymnastics he did to come to that and kamala harris did disagrees obviously disagrees with him wholeheartedly and she and that's the thing that she kind of took him to task on um earlier in the presidential race that's the thing on the map too like that clip was everywhere and you know what so i watched that clip again this morning but the title of it was about tulsi gabbard actually going after her and so i watched the whole thing and it really is like it almost kind of looks like a movie scene in a way. It's very, it's like somebody wrote it too well and it's perfect. Uh, like what a debate scene should look like of candidates and tearing look, each other down. Um, I do not like Tulsi Gabbard. I, I really, really, really dislike her, but she made valid points. She made because, real good points that Kamala could not argue. And that's the thing right, that I noticed she the most. Came after her prosecutorial record, which we we will talk yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Kamala did say, you know, when Joe Biden was talking about, again, mentioning his, like, you know, work with the civil rights movement and things like that, she mentioned that she wouldn't be standing on that stage for the debate that, that day if his bill had gone through and they had kept buses segregated. She wouldn't have gone to that different school. She wouldn't have gotten the education that she had. And she's very thankful for the fact that they desegregated the buses. Right. Yeah. Okay. So to talk a little bit more about this, in 1975, uh, there was a Senate hearing and there was the legendary civil rights lawyer, Jack Greenberg. He said during the Senate hearing um, 
something to Joe Biden. So Greenberg was a longtime director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and he took Biden to task for sponsoring a bill that would limit the power of courts to order school desegregation with busing. Uh, It was a move that followed the wishes of many of Biden's white constituents in Delaware. So Delaware is a fairly well-off state, a fairly white state, um, and his constituency did not want to have buses full of black and brown kids uh, coming into their area to go to school. So it did, again, it feels like that very people pleasing thing that Joe Biden does. Yes. Um, where he wanted to please the white people in his constituency. So his role in fighting student busing um, more than it was like 40 years ago that he did this, but it had renewed attention because of what Kamala kind of came out and said exactly um, during the debates. And he said that he strongly disagreed with Southerners views, but he needed to work with them to get things done. But political experts later came out and said, and education policy researchers came out and said that um, he was, although he was a supporter of civil rights in other arenas, he didn't simply compromise with segregationists. He worked he with actually, them and partnered yeah, with and them. He, and he actually led the charge on the issue of busing that kept black students away from classrooms exactly. with white students. So he was in cahoots with this guy named Senator James, I lost my page again, Senator James Eastland, who is just a blatant racist. He is called... Um, black people, the inferior race, like just a blatant, blatant racist. And there were letters that were uncovered shortly after this debate was aired or whatever. And it shows letters between the two of them where Biden is thanking Eastland for his support and another letter asking Eastland to help him put his bill before the Senate. So they did work together as partners to ensure that buses stayed right. separate. And- Biden would go on to defend this as saying, like, we had to reach across the aisle in order to get things done. This is what we had to do. But you didn't the way that he talks about them and the way that he spoke to them felt very chummy in a way that makes me very uneasy um, as a black person. Yeah. Makes me feel uncomfortable. And again, if he had had his way, this I don't see how you can look at this as anything other than discriminatory. The way that he exactly. felt about segregation. Essentially, he was pro-segregation in this one aspect. And that is and something that is mind-boggling to me that more people aren't screaming from the rooftops constantly. <laughs> you know, like yes. that's huge. Even kids understand that. Like kids who learn about, you know, Martin Luther King and Ruby Bridges, even if you were to say that to a child would be like, oh, no, that's not good. Right. Obviously. Yeah, exactly. Um, he also has a history of sexual assault allegations. We would be remiss not to at least mention these. We've all seen the photos and videos of him just acting in ways that feel very creepy. Also, his behavior at Anita Hill's testimony um, for the Clarence Thomas confirmation. He... It, it it's just he didn't first of all he didn't do enough which is what he owns up to that he didn't do enough to protect Anita Hill but it goes beyond that he his questioning to her was also very gosh I don't know invasive? It, it made 
invasive yeah. and unnecessary. Uh, and he kind of apologized to her and Anita Hill did not accept that apology. So you know that it was something that really stuck with her. The way that he responded to her is just kind of a very vague misogyny that that comes from a man of a certain age. That's what it feels like. Yeah. It's from Joe Biden. Yeah. Max and I always just kind of refer to him as the creepy old man, you know, cause I think right. that's something that we can all picture really well. And a lot of people kind of just say that flippantly, like, Oh, it's that generation. He's this creepy old man, which in a way is kind of true. It's like those people are going to die off eventually. And that is kind of going to go away, but we still have to hold people accountable for their inappropriate, uh, contact, Absolutely. especially in politics. If you're in the public eye, I feel that you have a responsibility to keep up with the times even more. You have to be on top of like what is acceptable and what is not because look at this, all this shit's coming out now. Absolutely. I mean, and that's kind of the thing about Joe Biden. And it's something that I've he- I've heard people on both sides kind of screaming about, like, why aren't you talking more about his um, inappropriate behavior with women? And then people on the other side kind of being like, it's not that bad. Again, it's just creepy uncle stuff, because most of it is most of it which is creepy that uncle that, stuff is scary as hell. The right. fact that you're and, saying uncle, a family member has always creeped me out. And people say that right. I'm like, no. And that's kind of the thing is like, it's hard to explain, but every woman knows what it feels like to be in a situation where they're just being made to feel uncomfortable by an older man. And it's not to say that it's out and out assault uh, or rape, but it is uncomfortable. So for instance, uh, there was one woman in March, 2020, former Senate aide Tara Reid alleged that Biden sexually assaulted her when she worked for his office in 1993. Biden um, denies assaulting or harassing her. And there have been eight women, including Reid, who have accused Biden of touching them inappropriately or invading their personal space in ways that made them feel uncomfortable. But all the women, so seven of the women, all the women except for Reid, said that Biden's behavior did not amount to sexual harassment or assault. So again, as women, we know what they're talking about. So yes, it wasn't out and out assault or out and out, you know, um, aggressive harassment, but it's still something that makes women feel uncomfortable in yes. the workplace, something we shouldn't have to go through, something that men don't have to go through. Yeah. You know. Well, and the the talk about, you know, people asking why aren't we talking about this more? And to me, we have two candidates who are sexual predators in some way, who are like creepy old men. They cancel each other out now. Like we don't have to have that be a debate topic because they're equally as bad. We can't Well, I, you know what I mean? I like would to, even say though they're not equally they're as not bad. okay like, it's they're bad. not equally as bad but i mean like you can't like trump's team can't bring up the sexual assaults because we could just say well yours are way fucking worse you know what i well, mean like yeah, that's you have rape credible rape allegations exactly yeah. like that's the difference but i feel like that's why it's not being brought up as much and it's simply because like I feel like people don't want to bring it up because the other candidate does as well and they don't want to be dredging up more stuff. I don't know. Right. I mean, and it sucks that we're in this position where it's like, okay, we have to choose between the lesser of two sexual harassers. Exactly. You know? like, exactly. That's no fun. And that's no fun. It's no fun for us to talk about. And that's the other thing is we are fucking stuck with him with that kind of stuff. So if we're going to look at the lesser of two evils, he's like Aziz Ansari and Trump is like Harvey Weinstein. 
There you go. You know what that's I mean? That's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's right. And not to downplay any of the things that he has done no. at all. That's not our intention, um, you know, but it's we had to talk about it. We had to at least bring it up. Um, there's not a lot that's known about his sexual assaults or any of that stuff. We've all seen the pictures of him just being a little too handsy. friendly. Yeah, a little too and handsy. And I hate that. Like all, like Keegan said, all of us know what that feels like, so we're not trying to downplay this at all or say that it's not a big deal. Uh, it's just one of those things that I feel like people don't mention it just because Trump is such... A monster right. when it comes to yeah. it. like why yeah. are we going to bring up Joe Biden stuff but again it's important that we do it because we have to hold him accountable so if shit goes down while he's in office right that can't exactly. fly you know mm-hmm. so uh, along the lines of holding people accountable for things let's talk about Kamala's prosecution record let's do it. real fast yeah it's so, interesting it is interesting you know she kind of calls herself a progressive prosecutor but her record People have pointed to it uh, and suggested kind of otherwise. Now, here's what I'm going to say before we go into talking about this is we're going to break down some of the things in her record that are really fucked up. We're also going to talk about I read an article in The Atlantic that was like an opinion piece that was basically um, arguing for all the reasons why we should cut Kamala Harris some slack yeah uh, on on this stuff so we will kind of talk about both sides of the coin here awesome uh, when talking about her record so yeah well and I wanted to know I wanted to make note really quick that there are many parallels between Biden and Kamala when it comes to their views on you know police brutality and Mm -hmm. uh, law enforcement and things like that so a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about with Kamala um, I'm going to interject things here and there because Joe Biden was was heavily responsible for the crime bill in 1994. Yes. Another thing that, you know, ha- you know, spearheaded mass incarceration and, you know, for the, the war on drugs and all of these things. And Kamala Harris just kind of came later on and still kind of, in a way, maintained a lot of those very similar uh, views and enforced them, you know? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and again, I do urge our listeners to look at all of this through the lens of the 90s and early 2000s, which had a radically different um, view on crime. Very like, That was very much the law and order, tough on crime kind well, of like, yes. era of politics. Because in the like late 80s and 90s, the level of crime, like like really violent crime, was again kind of skyrocketing. And again, with this whole war on drugs, there was all this panic about that kind of stuff. So Americans felt really, really scared and felt like we needed more officers in the streets to make us feel protected. And both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris has been quoted saying that people feel safer when there is someone in uniform walking down right. the street, which, which today you know, is we not hear true. That now. Exactly. We hear that now and we're like, mm. and even then, that's where I think, you know, kind of last week I said that skin folk ain't kin folk kind of thing. Yeah. That's where black people have an issue with Kamala Harris is that she says that and it feels very tone deaf to the black community because it's like, who feels safer? Yeah. Because it's not black communities that feel safer when they see, you know, more police officers on the street. Yeah. It's white communities that feel safer. And we'll talk a little bit about how 
or why that is that she would say something like that or even believe something like that. And it is to do with the politics of the time and her being an African-American woman. Well, and I was going to say the other thing is that, you know, we think it's hard right now for a woman in politics in the 80s and 90s. I mean, if you know who Monica Lewinsky is (laughs) and just how she was treated uh, by the political world, you know, it was a very... Uh, openly misogynistic time, especially in politics. So to to get ahead, you kind of had to like be one of the guys and play that game. In that article, that Atlantic article that I was reading, um, it said, this is a quote from it, conventional wisdom held that being deemed pro-criminal was even more dangerous for black politicians. So for her, being a black woman, um, if she made any kind of any kind of move that was deemed to be soft on crime, she was judged exceedingly harshly for it. And it right. does point out that during his 2004 Senate run, Barack Obama bragged that as a state senator, he had passed 150 pieces of legislation that toughened penalties for violent criminals, uh, which is something that we don't look kindly on now. But back then, especially for black politicians, it was seen as something you had to appear to be on the side of white law and order and not on the side of quote unquote black criminals. Right. There's an interesting quote by this law professor named Lara Bazelon. And she says in her career, Miss Harris did not barter or trade to get support of more conservative law and order types. She gave it all away. And I was like, ooh, like she, yes, there was yes. no, there was no like, you know, negotiations. And I understand why she did it in a way, because again, women are portrayed as being weaker. So if we are softer on crime, weaker on crime, then that will take away the credibility of the person in right. office. And, and a black woman in addition to that. And we'll talk a little bit about why she switched to being tougher on crime. So um, let's kind of get into that as attorney general real quick. So she was the attorney general from 2011 to 2017. Like we said, Um, she refused to endorse a 2015 bill calling for special prosecutor to investigate deadly police shootings. This is something that we've uh, that lots of people point to now because she supports Black Lives Matter now. But when she had the opportunity, she failed to endorse a bill that would have um, pushed to investigate deadly police shootings. And she also would deny uh, investigations if she was asked to like help serve Mm -hmm. as an investigation on a police shooting. She would be very flaky, maybe not respond or just say that she was unable to help. And especially now that she is speaking in such support of Black Lives Matter, it is a bit hypocritical. It feels hypocritical, yeah. So she also rejected calls, like you said, from civil rights groups to investigate the police shootings um, following the 2014 police-involved killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. In 2015, she did require body cameras for California Department of Justice agents, but she did not support legislation mandating them for all police officers, Right, which you're like, why? And she even Um, brings that up in the video that I was saying that I watched this morning of the debate between Biden, Harris and uh, Gibbard. And that's what she says. She's like, I started the body cams in California, but there's that little, you know, you got to add an asterisk to that and say, but but that caveat. You know, mm-hmm. there's something else to that. That's not the entire picture. So while that's good. Right. It's not good enough. Yeah. It's not good enough. And she was 
very unpopular uh, with the citizens of San Francisco, where she was a district attorney and attorney general. And there were even flyers that were being uh, put out during this time that said, tell tell California Attorney General Kamala Harris to prosecute killer cops. It's her job. Right. It it feels very much like what we do now with Jackie Lacey, Uh who is the uh, uh, district attorney here in Los Angeles, where we during the Black Lives Matter protests, there have been a ton of protests against her for the same reason, because she is not um, prosecuting cops. Exactly. And kind of along those lines as DA, well, not along those lines, but whatever um as da she began prosecuting parents of habitually truant students calling the issue of students skipping school quote tantamount to a crime and amid she did this amid criticism that the policy disproportionately targeted low-income people of color because of course it did because of course it did Right. Because the kids that are going to have the most difficult time getting to school are going to be the ones that probably cannot afford to get a ride from somebody else or have the support from, you know, family right. and financial services to help them get to school. Right. Which is something that she should know. And so this is why she became, you know, because she kind of did build this career off of being like, I'm a black woman, I'm a black woman. But then when the black community needed her, Um, And they were very excited at first to have her on their side. It felt like she abandoned them and she was working for uh, the white establishment rather than working for the people of color who got her elected. And that's the thing that makes me wonder how much of that was true to her morals, because she does appear to back everything that she's done which I think you kind of like you could admit that you'd been wrong but I feel like most people will kind of stick by their guns and what they did and try to explain it away and I kind of feel like that's what she's doing but maybe maybe those things that she did did not line up morally with who she was I don't know or she's changed I think it can be a catch-22 for politicians because if you change your mind very often you're called a flip-flopper um, where it's just normal yeah. to change your mind whenever you're presented with new information. I am hoping that she is absolutely going to be forced to address these things, and I am hoping that she is able to um, admit the places where she messed up and pledge to do better. But that same year that she was doing all the truancy stuff, in 2010, uh, she opposed an initiative in the state to legalize marijuana. And she does now support the legalization of marijuana. However, during her tenure as attorney general, at least 1,560 people were thrown behind bars for marijuana-related offenses between 2011 and 2016. And that's from the Washington Free Beacon. So she has to release those people. She does. And she was was once asked during that time if she ever smoked weed and she laughed. Like, it's just so cruel. It it is because, you know, there are people all across this country who are spending long periods of time in federal prison for nonviolent marijuana related offenses. And now you have politicians coming out supporting the legalization, decriminalization of it. Those people need to be released. Kamala Harris has a responsibility to release those people, especially once again, knowing that those convictions disproportionately greatly affect black and brown communities of which she claims with pride to be a member so you 
you have to to me that's one of the biggest ones where I'm like you have got to release these people right exactly I know we're running long but I just wanted to kind of give the flip side of why people kind of want to give Kamala Harris some slack yeah so in in 2004 um, she was an opponent of the death penalty and there had been a death penalty case in which a gang member shot and killed a police officer and she was getting a lot of pressure to execute this person, to um, bring back the death penalty in order to execute this person who had shot and killed this police officer. She refused to do so. And this did not sit well with police officials. So this is kind of in the beginning of her career. Um, This is before she's attorney general. This is when she's a DA. And because of that, it it actually almost ruined her career. Yeah. She almost did not get reelected because of this. And so because of that, she became harder on crime. Because like I said, as a black woman, as a black person, um, anytime you were you looked like you were on the side of a gang member and not the police. Right. Um, That's not going to turn out well for you. Criticized. So... This is another quote from that Atlantic article. This was the context in which Harris entered politics. By the standards of the early 2000s, her opposition to the death penalty made her a progressive on criminal justice issues, and that progressivism almost ended her political career. She responded by largely avoiding confrontations with police, a wariness she has now jettisoned as the public has grown more critical of police violence. So that that puts it into a great perspective. Right. She didn't do the right thing back then, um, but I don't think she did the right thing because she was trying to preserve her political career. And we can argue whether or not that's right um, for her to have done that. But I think she did what she felt like she had to do, whether that was right or wrong. Right. So the person that Kamala obviously is going to be working with is our hopefully future president, Joe Biden, who, you know, if I were to get into the crime bill, it would be a whole other episode. So I'm just going to touch briefly on uh, where it kind of ties into the election today uh, and the whole Black Lives Matter movement we have going on and our want to defund the police. Uh, It's upsetting because in 1994, uh, this was the largest crime bill in U.S. history. It provided 100,000 new police officers, and they had a $9.3 billion budget in funding for prevention programs and also for more jails and prisons. So if there are going to be more jails and prisons, that means that there are more people that have to go into these jails and prisons. So there were uh, longer sentences, there were harsher sentences being put out, and again, disproportionately affected the black community and, mm-hmm. the, and you know, any other, and it affected all people of color more uh, uh, more than it did anybody else. And so if we look at Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, we see that they're both heavily responsible for so many incarcerations and harsher prison sentences. And, you know, they kind of, to me right now, represent a lot of what's wrong in our justice system and the things that we're fighting against, which is really frustrating. So I went on to Politico.com and just looked at all of their policies. And I even compared them a little bit to Bernie and Elizabeth Warren because those were our favorites. But of course, we're going to focus on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris right now. And the few that I wanted to uh, bring up is that they are they do seem to be very progressive when it comes to gun control. Uh, they support voluntary buyback programs and favor universal background checks and a national firearm registry, which also falls in line with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's viewpoints, which is great. Uh, 
an unfortunate thing for women is that he still wants to have some limits on abortion. And Kamala feels the same. She's a... we Yeah, she's... Kamala is a huge advocate for women's rights and reproductive rights and things like that. So again, I feel like she's pandering a little bit to being more moderate. Uh, she does yeah, want she's their... she's compromising. Yeah, mm-hmm. she wants there to be, you know, less restrictions and things like that. But uh, Joe Biden says, and he's he's also fairly progressive with it as well, as long as everything falls in line with uh, Roe versus he Wade. Uh, and there's... Now. Yeah. He was not. Like, no. he, his stance on abortion, because also Joe Biden is Catholic, which is something that I didn't know. Yeah. Um, his stance on abortion in the 70s was... Really, like he did not agree with um, Roe v. Wade, oh, and in fact, even even after the rape and incest exemptions passed, where we we're like, you can you can't have abortion unless you've been raped or uh, you're a victim of incest. He voted to remove those exemptions. Yeah. So throughout his career, his record on abortion is it's not it's good. not great. But he did, today, I went he on flipped recently. Yeah, yeah, I went on the Planned Parenthood website, and they very openly endorsed Joe Biden, and they say that he is you know a champion for some of these causes. So well, he does. I wouldn't call him a champion, but he does you know uh, believe that there should be some limits. And then when I looked at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's, they said few limits, if any. So that's kind of seeing the difference. Like Biden, I feel like is going to kind of keep with the status quo of what our abortion laws have been pretty much where I think Bernie and Elizabeth Warren wanted to make uh, our reproductive rights uh, improved. More accessible for sure. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, Joe Biden opposes Medicare for all, which is really unfortunate. Uh, he wild during a pandemic. I know. That he would feel that way, but okay. He again, both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden believe in, um, or sorry, Kamala Harris believes in legalizing marijuana, but Joe Biden wants to let the states decide. And they both say that they want to scrap past pot convictions. So I'm like, Kamala, where are you at? Chop, chop. That would be great. Um, There was some troubling thing with defense spending uh, that I could get into on another day, but that's something, you know, whenever we're discussing, you know, defense and militarizing, you know, the police and anything like that, seeing that that is going to be funded right now is kind of unfortunate. He does want to raise corporate income taxes and wealth taxes. Uh, Joe Biden says, don't worry so much about China, which made me laugh. Uh, So for the most part, it seems like the biggest thing that we are going to have to kind of keep our candidates on task with when they get the presidency and the vice presidency, let's be optimistic, our biggest things that we are probably going to have to look out for is how they handle law enforcement post George Floyd, you know? Yes. Um, And again, because these two... I feel like our politicians, uh, they can read the room of what's happening right now. And I hope that that means that they will be making changes that are positive um, in that way. I I do have hope that that will be the case. And I'm always hoping Um, that whoever is going to be in their administration, whoever is surrounding them in their day to day life, I think that's also a really important factor into what politicians decide because it's not just them you know they get advice from so many people and ensuring that they're going to be around people that are also very progressive and educate them and push them forward to make these changes I think is going to be the most helpful right well 
And kind of my final thoughts on these two. I do think maybe later on we can do like an extended mini episode where we kind of just talk about their stance on all the major issues because we weren't able to get to that today. But my kind of final thoughts on these two candidates is I actually went in, you know, I went into this feeling hopeful for Kamala, but also very, very critical. Uh, And I remain critical of her. However, I feel like Kamala knows the right thing to do. And I think once she has the ability to do the right thing, I think that she actually will do it. I think in her heart, she is not a bad person. I think she did bad things in in order to gain power, which is not good. Don't get me wrong. But Um, I have to say this, this episode was eye opening in both ways to the positives and to the negatives of these people. And yes, it did make me as well feel a little bit better about Kamala Harris, made me feel worse about Joe Biden. Um, it, but it did, but at the same we've time, we've already survived I mean, Biden I, in office in some way. So, right. And at the same time, even though I, a lot that I read about Joe Biden, I didn't like, I did read some things that I did like, yeah. and I did read, um, a lot of his stances on major issues and what he wants to do in the presidency. And overall, I think it's good. Yeah. I do think it's good. I don't think while a lot of things that he's done in his past, I, I disagree with, um, mostly just the lying joke yeah. like if you had just not just lied so lie. much um mostly that stuff but other than that i really do feel like they both have good intentions um to make the kind of improvements that we want to see like yeah I, I hope that they have the country's best interests at heart right and i i did post something on instagram that was saying that you know you're not looking for the one when you go to vote it's not dating it's not marriage you're not looking for the one it's public transport you're getting on the bus that's taking you closest to where you want to exactly go. so while these two candidates are not perfect are they taking us that's the question we need to ask ourselves are they taking us closer in the direction that we want to go than where we are currently 100 and to me the answer is absolutely obviously you know obviously yeah. yeah anything would be better than this dumpster fire we've had for the last three and a half years so oh well this was a doozy i'm gonna have fun editing this one i mean and we even tried to go fast i could tell we uh, totally it did was a lot it was a lot of information there was just no way around it yeah i just really we were thinking of maybe doing it in two parts and all this stuff and i was like no i really want to just try to get it out there and obviously there's going to be more discussions of this to come and you know i i'm sure keegan as well would really love to hear all of your thoughts on all of this what are your thoughts on these candidates and do you feel hopeful do you feel discouraged what are what are your thoughts and feelings because i really learned a lot through you know just exploring their past and things like that and i kind of want to know what you all are thinking now so if you want to totally yeah if you want to send us a message what i was gonna say we also realized that we didn't hit on everything yeah there's a bunch of positive shit in in biden's past as well um that we didn't talk about today so we will be bringing up that stuff as time goes on it just we just didn't have it would have been like a five-parter we would have had to have like an episode on each like major topic and it would have been too much so we just wanted to give you a quick overview but if there's anything that you do want to say to us reach out to us about go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com you can direct message and follow us on instagram at wow i like had another thought in my head and then i forgot what our instagram was 
Angry Neighborhood I know feminist. what it is now, but as I was saying it, I, it wasn't coming out. At Angry Neighborhood Feminist, <laughs> we have a Twitter that we sometimes use, at Yamp Podcast. Why? A. N. F. Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. Go ahead and rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it so much when you do that. And we also really appreciate it when you listen to us on the Radio Public app. It is a free way for you to listen to us and it helps us just a teeny tiny bit. With all that being said, we encourage you to To rage on. on. Bye. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.